Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. After I read Patrick Madden's fascinating new collection of essays, it's called Sublime Physic, I found myself struggling with the best way to describe it. Madden's subjects range from the nature of time to spitting. Yes, spitting, as when you spit on the ground or, worse, at someone. To the almost inevitable way that artists and writers, even as they attempt to be original, end up repeating, reusing, and rearranging the work of other artists and writers. Madden studied physics before coming to the essay, so he tries to grapple with fundamental principles and questions. Not quite seeking any grand, unified theory, he doesn't really believe one exists, nor would he want one, but always dimly aware of it right outside the periphery. Though his essays are personal, there are plenty of externalities. There are even some mathematics but there aren't any equations. The essays all derive in some way from the physical world and all reach toward the sublime. I'm beginning to believe that, for Madden, everything we know is a kind of sublime physic, an abstraction that we think we know in two distinct forms, yet which is really a unity, matter-energy, space-time, mind-body, emotion-intellect, self-others, inside-outside, non-fiction-fiction. I could go on listing these apparently opposed terms, and yet, where they meet in Madden's work, he always finds beauty. Patrick Madden, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks a lot, Eric. Good to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you about this new book. It's called Sublime Physic. Um, but before we get to that, before we get to the the book and the essays, um, it's a collection of essays. You know, I don't think that's a spoiler alert. I do. No. I do want to ask you how how does one become an essayist? You know, I, I meet young people who they want to write that novel or they they fancy themselves poets, but you know, you don't really run into to high schoolers who are like, when I grow up, I want to be an essayist. I think part of that's because uh, in high school, the thing they call essay is not very appealing. It's often used as a kind of punishment. So students are uh, afraid of essays or at least to avoid them. And I, I don't think I ever really wanted to be a novelist or poet. I don't have the skill for those things. I came at essay writing from a different route. I studied physics. I really loved that in high school. And I studied physics in college. I got a bachelor's degree from Notre Dame in physics. And the reason I loved physics was because I loved figuring out how the world works. And one of the things that college physics taught me was that in the 20th century, most of the cutting-edge research in physics uh, saw the world as less knowable, less uh, fixed, and more mysterious. So, for instance, we know Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, uh, which states that you can't know on a particle's position and momentum simultaneously. But metaphorically, it kind of points to the fact that some things, no matter how precise our technology or how well we can, how well we can study them, 
Uh, some things are just beyond our comprehension inherently. And that kind of got me into essay writing, or at least the type of thinking that works well with essay writing. Uh, the other thing that happened was I kind of got soured on physics because real physicists are experts on very minute areas of knowledge. And I had so many like wide ranging interests that I didn't want to give up entirely. So um, I did finish my degree, but I kind of decided I didn't want to study physics anymore. Uh, by my senior year, I was taking all sorts of classes across the campus, things that really counted only as electives, uh, like photography and philosophy classes and things like that. Um, also, after I uh, graduated, I served a mission for the Mormon Church, and that was two years in Uruguay. And during that time, I just had a lot of time to think idly about what I was interested in. And I decided that what I loved more than anything was thinking. And I wanted to think just uh, wildly and not be an expert on any one area of knowledge, but an amateur able to uh, think about and write about all sorts of things. So I decided if I could learn how to write, then I could make a life out of that. And I think I got just very lucky. I, I discovered or rediscovered essays the the things I'm doing now about the punishments in high school and saw that writers could, you know, study a nonfiction area that they were curious about and write it up well and then go on to the next thing. So that's kind of the summary version of my trajectory into essay writing, uh, mostly from loving the world and wanting to figure out how things work. And I think that's the note I'd want to pick up on. I mean, you've done a nice job of explaining how it is that you can get the essay out of that torturous assignment that we all got as a junior in high school or something like that, you know, write an essay on right. Milton's influence or something like that. Um, but to get to, to the idea of, of the exploration of knowledge and thought and, and curiosity, um, there's this, there's this really striking line in the book. Uh, it's something like, I've, I never feel more alive than when I'm essaying. Oh, yeah. And that's about as far as you can get from, oh, my God, I've got to write an essay. Yeah, I think quite, you know, they're antithetical. The thing that we call essay in high school doesn't really work the way essays could or should work. So when Montaigne coined the term, he was talking about exploration, experiment, trial, testing out ideas. What we assign, not me, but a lot of us assign <laughs> to our to our students' composition classes and so forth, is really a kind of test. So they're expected to make a point and drive home that point with evidence and prove it. Uh, in fact, they'll usually make the point within the first paragraph. This is the structure that we've been teaching, five-paragraph essay. So the first paragraph includes the conclusion what I'm going to tell you is X or Y, and here are the three points I will make that will convince you of it, and then in the end, I'll just restate my conclusion. Um, and that's not exploratory at all. I mean, I suppose that a student has to learn some of those things, but they're not learning, they're not creating new knowledge on their own. What they're doing is regurgitating things that have already been stated by others, and 
yeah, they're, they're driven to convince. So rhetorically, it's positioned opposite what essays really do, which is ex- explore the author's own ignorance. And if they do conclude, they conclude tentatively and partially, always recognizing the vastness of the unknown and maybe the unknowable. <clears throat> and so writing the essays that I enjoy, I, I like to write, I like to teach, really is a kind of, uh, it's, it's a way of energizing your thinking, allowing yourself to stay focused on something you might not, you might not do in your regular life. If, if your life's anything like mine, where just you're so busy and harried with uh, things bombarding you at all times. Um, if you can escape some of that and, and sit and focus, give attention to a subject, let your mind wander and make associations, that's really exhilarating for me. And you see that throughout the book. Uh, and here I will risk, um, no, I'm going to make sure I don't do any spoiler alerts, but some of the places these essays <laughs> end, you would never imagine um, from the place that they start that, say, when you begin with an investigation of spitting and the habit of spitting, where you end up, um, and the kind of reckoning that can come out of what seems like a, a non-subject. Uh, but, but you did mention uh, Montaigne, uh, the, the inventor of the essay, and, and you are known as a writer who is, is grounded in the essayistic tradition. Um, you've done a lot to try to reinvigorate that, including doing a book. And, you know, I can imagine if there, there are young writers out there, um, there's this view that the past can be a kind of, you know, albatross around the neck. I want to be free. I want to write my, with my own voice. I want to do my own thing. Um, and looking backward, that man, that's just a drag. But, you know, when you look at your book, uh, running through it are, are essayists from the 17th century all the way up until the present. And I'm just kind of curious as to how you see that tradition that you, you are so evidently participating in. Yeah, I mean, I'm consciously attempting to... Uh, allow the past to exert an influence on my writing and to continue at least a 400 year old tradition. And certainly it goes beyond Montaigne to his influences back to classical Greek and Roman times. Um, I guess I just, I didn't encounter those essayists until I was in graduate school. They weren't part of any curriculum I took. And maybe that's in part because I was studying physics, but um, they were curious to me and a bit confusing, somewhat difficult to to get sometimes because the language is a bit archaic. So it required some attention and a little bit of work on my part, but ultimately I grew to love them because it seemed to me like what I was reading was a kind of recreation of an actual human being. Like I could reanimate a soul and, uh, have a new friend sitting down with me. And this is not a new idea. Hazlitt says that of Montaigne. He says, uh, I'm just paraphrasing. He says he was the first writer who invited you behind the curtain to sit down in gown and slippers by the fire, something like that. And yeah, that's what it feels like. We're just having a conversation with somebody, somebody long dead by this point. But um, the idea of, recreating thinking in an artistic way was very appealing to me. It, it 
gets beyond a simple recounting of events and experiences, although those can form part of an essay. Um, I liked the mind engaged with the events and experiences and making connections. And so I try very consciously to do that in my own writing, also to modernize it a bit, to, you know, bring it up to my own culture, my own circumstance. So in addition to uh, conversing with and quoting some of the great essays of the past, I converse with a lot of uh, contemporary music, lyrics, and so forth. So, uh, but that's, I guess, inevitable and, and natural for somebody who was, you know, raised in the late 20th and now the 21st century, uh, that music would be a big part of my thinking. So, and I hope that not just my writing, but kind of my my website, the quotidiana.org website, and the book you referenced after Montaigne that I edited with David Lazar is reaching interested writers in ways that they don't normally get. Uh, I remember encountering people in at Ohio there, at Ohio University in the grad program, who were in a PhD program who had never read anything published before the 20th century, essentially. And it seemed like they were missing out on what gave rise to where they are now. I think the, a lot of the authors that they authors they did read had read and were influenced by Montaigne, Lamb, Hazlitt, and the like. But they had short-circuited that and were only be reading their own contemporaries. You had mentioned this idea that, you know, the essay is about sitting down with a friend and um, and the description of the mind in action, the essay trying to, in some ways, capture almost a consciousness thinking its way through um, some object or problem or issue or topic. And uh, one of the, the effects of the book is that I do feel as though I know Patrick Madden very well. Um, by the time you finish it, you meet the kids and the wife and you revisit crucial moments, both in your life as a writer um, and in your family, you know, the kids get lost and you wonder where they are. Um, right. So I, I, I was wondering about that, uh, that sense of, of capturing a self, you know, Montaigne says, I myself am the subject of my book uh, in his introduction. And, right. um, here you are, you know, launching Patrick Madden in between book covers. Um, is that a conscious aim? Is it to, to capture some sense of, of what it is to be you? Yeah, certainly. I want, um, maybe I'm kind of hedging my, my bets on immortality and not that these <laughs> books will, <laughs> will be major books, any, but they'll exist. And my own children at least will, I hope keep copies on their shelves and so forth. But it does feel like not a direct transfer of self to text, but I mean, I understand pretty well that I am not those words in the book, but the words come from me. And so they do represent at least a version of me or an intention of my own. So uh, the illusion should be, I hope it succeeds, and I'm glad that in in your reading it, it did, at least somewhat. The, the hope is that I'm recognizable in the text itself. I'm, I've not intentionally masked myself or filtered myself the way the narrator of a fictional work would do 
as as relates to the author, right? But in in this sense, the narrator, I, has a flesh and blood equivalent, I, and they're pretty close to one another. Obviously, what I've written can't be complete, and uh, Montaigne also says that he spruces up for public display, right? So he's um, not utterly entire in the essays, but what's in the essays is realistic and accurate to him. So, um, like, I'm not naive about it, I guess I'm saying. I, I understand that the text is a construct and that I've crafted a persona on the page, but you know, I do that in real life too. Um, when someone meets me on the street, they're meeting a part of me or when I play certain roles like the professor or the father or the neighbor, I, I act in different ways appropriate to those situations. Yeah. I, I often think that, you know, if you, you know, we, we have this kind of imperative when we're, when we have, people in our intimate circle, right? I want to get to know you. I want to know who you are, you know, in your family, something like that. And, and often they'll default to, to kind of pictorial ideas, right? What does this person look like? What do they do? Um, But it often seems like if you, if you really wanted to know someone, knowing how they think, knowing how their, their mind operates would be as much, if not more revealing as, you know, knowing what their daily routine looks like or something like that. And, uh, and I think that's that's one of the things that your persona captures the way that questions are driving forward and and the 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 flight of association that's taking place right and it can be I, I suppose you have to find someone of like mind to appreciate the writing um, <laughs> well this is not, this is the danger you bring up in the book right the, yeah why would anybody want to pay attention to me <laughs> exactly now. I'm glad that some people do, but I have no illusions that it will be a large number of people. I mean, in general, people don't read essays, at least not uh, knowingly. And, um, you know, they read suspense novels and, you know, salacious details of celebrities' lives. I mean, that's what sells a lot, right? And so I have really no shot at that. I'm just happy enough to – I'm happy to have the chance to at least publish to a few uh, – good-hearted people, many of whom I know, some of whom I don't, which is always a pleasant surprise. Well, the New Books Network is full of ideal readers, so we are going to to press on. Although we will, yeah. we will point out that if you wanted to title a book of essays so that it would reach the largest population, you know, you could imagine on laughter and joy. Um, yeah, yeah. But say sublime physic. Tell us a little bit about how that title takes us into this this uh, this book of essays. You're right. On the one hand, it's not a very appealing or catchy title, but I think it actually catches a certain kind of reader. It's an archaic statement. It seems oxymoronic if you think about it well. Um, and so people who are interested in ideas might see that title and say, well, that's curious. I wonder what that's about. Uh, I got the the phrase when I was doing some research on Amadeo Avogadro, the chemist, uh, early 19th century chemist, uh, Italian, who in later life, because of his work, was appointed the chair of the Department of 
Physica Sublime, Sublime Physic at the University of Turin. I read that and I thought, what a strange, what a strange pairing of words. It seems the sublime is the ephemeral and ethereal beyond the world, the metaphysical, and the physical is the stuff you can touch. So it's like the concrete abstraction or something like that. And I started playing with that phrase and thinking about the ways that it's actually uh, like like all good oxymorons, they don't really oppose. They simply uh, create some friction that generates a new idea. And in this case, I guess I should say that I think literally the department was what we'd call theoretical physics, right? So it was the mathematical and the idea-driven side of physics. And at that time, they didn't so much distinguish between physics, chemistry, and so forth. But for me, um, I got the idea that essays derive from, they're grounded in the real world, either objects or experiences that you could touch. But if they're successful, they generate from that idea, they generate something almost spiritual, certainly abstracted. Uh, And you can see that historically through essays, they're usually titled with some sort of concept instead of thing. So fear or friendship or sorrow, those are all empathy. Yeah, there's lots of uh, airy abstractions floating about in essay titles. But even the ones that aren't titled that way, I think of uh, The Death of the Moth by Virginia Woolf. The title is an event, a real-world event that you could see, you could experience. But if the essay only told us a moth died, there'd be nothing to it. It'd be, it'd be utterly boring and really thin. But because she's so uh, associatively suggestive and she talks about the force of life and she seems to be hinting at uh, the death and destruction of war that has played a big part in her life, not just the events of her life, but the thinking of her life, that essay is really masterful. So, um, second chapter in the book kind of runs through a bunch of associations that I make with uh, the phrase sublime physic. But at core, I think that not just my essays, but many and the best, my favorite essays, are all doing something along that axis of the sublime and the physical. And they attempt to transcend reality or even transcend a recounting or a narrative and get to some core idea so that they're idea driven. And that's what I'm hoping with the book. And I love to find when I read. Yeah. Well, I'd love it if you, if maybe you give us a little sample so we could give, get a sense of what that might sound like on the page. Sure. Um, you mentioned before that you get to know my family a bit and, uh, the, the third essay in the book is called Entering and Breaking, and I don't mind uh, spoiling the narrative, and I do it within the essay, but my two sons at age one and three went missing and were gone for two hours. And in retrospect, two hours doesn't feel like so much time, but when you're in the thick of that, two hours is eternal, and uh, your mind goes to places you'd never want it to go because... By the time, not just 
not just we, but the whole neighborhood and the police and the fire department, everybody was looking for these two guys and we hadn't found them. I thought the only reasonable explanation now is that they've been taken or they've fallen upon some, you know, danger somewhere. So, um, I'll read a passage where I, I go ahead and, and spoil the ending. And I'll go from there. So Sounds good. Start with, the sp- start with spoiling and end and, and with sublimity. Yeah, I think, I think essays can do that. They can spoil the narrative. They don't need to uh, retain readers by suspense. At least I hope so. <laughs> anyway, uh, here's this part. Knowing that these words will fail to convey even the remotest measure of the lived experience, I will cut the tension here to let you know the outcome. The boys were found. I'll tell you how in a minute. I ask you not to sympathize or to enter the mind space I inhabited then, but to think with me now at a distance. For instance, let us take for a moment one sideways path that I have considered in the aftermath. There was a time only four years ago when I thought four children were plenty. Karina and I had matched our parents' output, had reached a reasonable return on our marital, marital investment. Our car, a minivan, allowed us to travel together to Yellowstone or to the grocery store. Our house was comfortable, with the three girls sharing a large bedroom and their older brother occupying his own room across the hall. But the births of Marcos and James were the most irreversible of irreversible processes. Though they've existed for only a fraction of my life, they've so inserted themselves into my consciousness that they seem to have existed always. Their lives are so entangled with my own that I feel as if without them, I am not. Though I'd been content with a quartet, there was no going back to four children without destroying me. It's a beautiful passage. I thank you. Yeah, I think uh, so. Okay, so so let me just ask you this in a, in a much more concrete way. Now that the the listeners have had a chance to hear that, so this material, maybe more than any other material in the book, is your chance to do the mini thriller. Where are the kids? <laughs> I can't find the kids. They're not here. They're not there. We check the usual places. They're not in their hiding place beside the bushes. I'm at the office. I can't leave. I don't want to leave. Right. And yet you just spoil it. What does that open up for the essayist by, by just ejecting the narrative tension right from the start? Well, you know, a lot of, a lot of creative nonfiction is personal. It's about an experience the author, him or herself, experienced. And if it's uh, dangerous, harrowing, then the reader knows from the beginning that the author is going to make it through. They'll survive, Right. In this case, you don't quite know that because it's my sons. It's not me who's uh, in the at least mysterious, potentially dangerous situation. But what I wanted to do here, and, you know, I started with the idea of writing about this, not quite knowing what I would connect it to, but I was pretty certain that I didn't want to just tell the the what happened of it, primarily because I, I just find in creative nonfiction at least – suspenseful narratives I find them a little dissatisfying like they they work on the level of the the cheap thrill in this case what I discovered and I begin it here when I when I break the narrative was that I wanted to think about uh, quantum entanglement and 
the Thompson double slit experiment in which uh, he discovered that light behaves both as particle and as wave. Okay. Or he proved it at least. And so I was thinking about, and this, this came quite serendipitously because I believe it was the day after we found the boys, I was at a faculty seminar uh, and the subject of which was evolution. But before we began, I was speaking with a physics professor and he was talking about the double slit experiment and the indeterminate nature of light, which could be expanded to help us think about all particles, that all particles are dual in their nature. And, you know, this is that cusp of 20th century physics, the kind of new understanding that uh, scientists like Schrodinger and Dirac and um, de Broglie were understanding newly, right? So I started kind of working back through the way that I talked about what was happening and using phrases like, um, you know, the, the boys had so entangled with my, their lives were so entangled with my own. So the, the way of approaching that idea was, uh, to break up the narrative and retell the thoughts that I had then, or the thoughts I'm having as I'm writing in ways that kind of skew to the physical. And I guess one of the metaphors that I was trying to work is that during the time the boys were missing, uh, they were as, as particles not yet resolved into a particular location. So going back to the uncertainty theory, you cannot know momentum and position simultaneously. And in this case, I had lost their position, and so they could have existed anywhere, at least in my imagination, right? You can easily point to the fact that they actually were at a neighbor's house uh, where nobody was home, and they walked in the open front door, and because this was Halloween, they found the candy that was to be given out that night, and they spent the two hours watching cartoons and eating a lot of candy, right? So it's a, it's a funny kind of story ultimately. Uh, but it's only funny once you, once everything's resolved. Sure. You know, um, well, I'm, I'm curious about this. So, so you've mentioned a, a couple of different scientific theories and a, a handful of scientists and you know, you, your background in as an undergraduate doing physics, um, and, and of course, now we tend to think of the arts and sciences as distinct cultures, right? The two cultures of the university, or even the way we talk about college is the college of the arts and sciences. Um, and here's a book that you've written that is constantly bringing them together. Um, and, and a lot of times you'll explain them in the book as, as metaphors for thinking about how things work. This, this scientific concept, like, um, you know, the Heisenberg's principle gives me a way of thinking about my experience. It has, it has a metaphoric explanatory power as a metaphor. Right. Um, I'm curious if, if for you, this idea of the pursuit of knowledge and the distinction between if there's, if there's a deeper connection or something maybe that you're seeing that those of us that, that buy into this contemporary distinction don't. And I'm kind of thinking of, 
of Francis Bacon, who is the the first essayist in English, the first one to use the title essay. And we also kind of attribute to him the the beginning of the scientific method and the empirical process. And so the essay is is born at a moment before this split happens, where you don't necessarily have to be someone who's doing the arts and therefore not doing the sciences, or someone doing the sciences and therefore not doing the arts. And and it seems to me that one of the places you occupy is you don't want to do one or the other either, um, which is not to say you know you you're running a lab on the side. That would be nice, but no. <laughs> yeah, I because I've not retained my you know, study of physics the way you would if you were in a lab. Uh, physics is something that I'm I'm quite interested in. I like to read about implications and results, but I don't do the frontline research, which is, you know, sometimes quite, uh, I don't know, it takes a long time and it can be a bit boring when your experiment is to collide particles inside an accelerator that you can never see. And they're in they're subatomic particles anyway. And you've got a computer that catches uh, the results. And then you have to spend years examining what the computer caught before you can determine, Hey, we have a 99 point something percent uh, certainty that we've discovered the Higgs boson, for instance. So, um, but I think, even the way physicists understand physics is metaphorical. Um, if you think about the model of the atom we're typically taught, there's a, a dense ball of protons and neutrons in the middle surrounded by electrons in orbits, and they're whipping around. Everybody's um, drawing that in their mind right now. <laughs> right, and you, you've seen the picture. Yeah. It, it, it serves a function in terms of understanding behavior of atoms, but it's not a picture of an atom. It's not like if we had the capability to look at an atom, we wouldn't see something that looks like that drawing. Um, and so later and more accurate uh, models of the atom talk about probabilities and uh, energy states where electrons can exist in a certain energy state, which we think of as a distance from the nucleus but that's probably not accurate, but they, they can go up or down in energy states, but they never occupy exact positions between those energy states, which is a little bit difficult to conceive of because what we experience in our macro world, there, there are no correlates to that. We see things moving from point A to B and you can catch, catch them at any point between there. They don't jump simultaneously. Um, so, and I, going back to the bigger question you had, I suppose that in this type of world where we are, where we are specialized and we provide particular services to others in exchange for money, which we then exchange for basic necessities and so forth, um, it's to be expected that we would think of science and art as quite different. We certainly economize them very differently, right? If you tell your parents you want to study art in college, most parents are going to be quite worried about, you know, how you'll make a living and so forth. Uh, culturally, we, we simply don't support the arts in that way, at least not widely enough. We support a few musicians and 
a few writers with vast sums of money. You can get very rich, but the, the majority of people in those fields are just scraping by. So I like, I like what you point out, that Francis Bacon was a scientist who wrote essays. Now, what he wrote as essays may be a little bit more like the things we uh, assign in high schools, you know, because he, he often seemed to know exactly what he was trying to convey. He wanted to convince people of uh, right ways to live. Like the subtitle of his essays collection is Essays or Counsels, Moral, Civil, Religious. So he was advising people. Whereas Montaigne would say repeatedly, uh, I'm not writing to teach others, but only to explore myself. Those basic ideas, right? Um, but, you know, at Ohio, you still got a College of Arts and Sciences. At Br- Brigham Young, where I am, we have them separated out. We have the College of Humanities, a College of Fine Arts, College of Science. So they're separate on their own. But I do like the idea of the arts and sciences being united somehow, even if in practice that's rare, at least if we can keep them tied together in our, in some ways in our thinking, then I think we're doing a good service to unite or reunite, you know, just different sides of the same coin, knowledge, uh, understanding, exploring the world we can do that in many different ways and art and science both do that yeah i often think when you you set out to write an essay you get this sort of thing that looks like a backstage pass that says essayist and you are allowed to go across disciplinary boundaries and think about questions that the disciplines would love to just quarter off for themselves um yeah that that makes me think of a question which is you you've talked a couple times about wanting to think about something and and if you're writing an essay and you're, you're not interested in making an argument, you're, you're not interested in conveying the wisdom that you already possess to someone else, you're not interested in telling a simple and straightforward narrative, um, all of which is to say you don't know exactly what you want to say before you start it. How do you know what is a good topic to start in on? Like, you know, you have an essay on, on buying a base. Right. How do you know that that's going to make a good essay before you start it? How, what makes for a, a rich topic? How do you know where to go in? I guess I should say that I'm never sure even after I finish if I've written <laughs> on a good topic, right? But I can say that I've, if I finish an essay and publish it, then I've satisfied myself. And uh, I suppose that's enough, right? I'm not saying that to be egotistical just to say that well, I can't really write to please others, at least not as my primary motivation. Um, It used to be that I I didn't know, and I would write and invest time and effort and then ultimately fail. But now I think one of the things I've gained through uh, many years of practice is that I can sense from an early stage whether where I'm going will be worth, worth the time I invest in it. Typically, that's because I've encountered some kind of uh, idea that makes me interested. So in the Buying the Base essay, I was interested in um, how we imitate, how we take upon ourselves characteristics that we find in others near us. And that's a, like a pretty small example, a simple story. But if it was just about, hey, guys, I bought a base, 
it's the Getty Lee Fender Jazz bass. It's cool. That's certainly not enough to write about. Um, but when I'm thinking about how the salesman's inflection and uh, attitude kind of infected me, and then worrying about am I an individual, am I strong in myself, or you know, does, does taking on inflections from another person reveal a kind of uh, lack of character, or is that a natural and acceptable, forgivable consequence? I think that's at least somewhat interesting to me, maybe not to everybody. Um, in other essays, I really started out with no idea where they would lead. So you mentioned the spit essay, the, the first essay in the book. It would seem to be a very bad idea to write an essay about spit. It's disgusting. It doesn't really. That was my um, first thought when I read the first page. What is he doing? <laughs> right. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to count that as a success if I could get you to to, to cringe and, and ask that question. Yeah, right? I do believe the essay is a success. <laughs> well, thanks. But, I, you know, I understand. I know you can't just write an essay that's about that superficial subject, the, the thing itself, the physical side of that equation. So you have to get it to something else. And I was really surprised because through the process of writing, um, I started to remember a, a shameful experience from my past. And also I sent off and got some genealogical work done based on a cheek swab you know, the DNA test and encountered a guy who was a very distant relative of mine who had a, a rough life to, to recount. And I got to thinking about essentially repentance. Can we really change? If, if we believe we've changed, are we safe from a kind of reversion to that person we didn't want to be, you know? And, that's super interesting to me, and in part because it's never, it's not a resolvable question. You can't, like going back to that high school essay assigned topic, uh, you can't really argue that because no matter what you want to say, there's always a different perspective that'll get you a different answer. And so I think ultimately that is a good topic. You know, one of Mateo's essays is on repentance. And he comes down on both sides if 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 it's only two. I mean, maybe there's more than two sides, in fact. Um, in his opening line, he says, <clears throat> others form man, I portray man, and a very particular one, one who I would make very different if the occasion allowed, something like that. So he's essentially saying other writers try to tell you how you should be. They try to form you. And I'm just trying to portray one. And he says, I do not portray being, but passing. Okay, the the fluctuations, the the changes of humanity. Now he's talking about montanity. He's talking about himself, but you can extrapolate and think about yourself based on what he's writing too. So, yeah, ideas that cannot be easily or even ever resolved or answered those make for good essays. I think. And I, th I think you see them coming up again and again in the book. I think it's, it's fair to give the listeners a sense that each essay takes you on a, a different kind of journey. Um, you meet famous writers in one. Uh, you 
you think about the nature of time or the nature of identity in another, it's much more exciting than these abstractions that I'm saying. Um, the last one even kind of raises the question of, you know, when you're, you're writing or you're trying to articulate your own ideas, which is, of course, the heart of the book, do you even know if you're going to be original? And it's a monstrous essay. It's called Independent Redundancy, and it takes up, what, maybe like a fifth of the book? Yeah, maybe yeah. a quarter almost. Yeah, probably yeah. It's almost 100 pages long. I was wondering if you could just read a, a little selection from that that I particularly enjoyed. Yeah. It's on page 192. Right. And it's, uh, you know, because that seems like maybe that's something that a lesser writer would suffer. Like, oh, I'm, I'm imitative. I, I don't know if I'm saying the same kind of thing that someone said. But you have this really kind of smart and nicely written passage on Milton. Right. Yeah, that oh, I'd yeah. be interested in hearing. Yes, for sure. I'm talking about, um, I'm responding against people who might claim pure genius or originality. Okay? So I say, and that goes for the most renowned geniuses, the Dantes and Miltons who dwell on the Olympian heights. Now I've been called, a, now I've been called classless and a classist, but never a classicist. And yet when I look at an edition of Paradise Lost and see all those footnotes staking the bottom of every page telling me that Milton is alluding to lines from Virgil or Ovid or a hundred other poets in Latin and Greek, I see a fellow writer under the influence. Milton works the way all of us do, using the writing that came before him and retooling it for his own ends. The difference between Milton and me, okay, one of the differences, Milton is justifying the ways of God to man while I write essays about my daughter's boogers and looking like Jeffrey Dahmer. One difference is the way he transforms his influences. And here's a quote from William Hazlitt. Milton has borrowed more than any other writer and exhausted every source of imitation, sacred or profane. Yet he is perfectly distinct from every other writer in originality and, and scarcely inferior to Homer. The power of his mind is stamped on every line. In reading his works, we feel ourselves under the influence of a mighty intellect that the nearer it approaches to others becomes more distinct from them. And that's the end. The more Milton voices the words of other poets, the more he sounds like himself. His use of Virgil and Ovid starts to look oddly like originality, or more oddly, self-plagiarism. Yeah, so, excellent passage. I mean, tell us a little bit about how you came to write that and, and this particular essay. I mean, it, obviously the book is invested in this question to a fourth of its manuscript pages. Right. Um as I as you, as I say there, I'm not much of a Milton scholar myself, only a, a dilettante or aficionado. But in general, I was looking for examples of writers or musicians. There are a lot of musical examples in here whom we would consider original or even geniuses, and poke into their process and think about how they came to become so renowned as original and almost universally these artists are not they don't buy into the idea of originality as creation ex nihilo instead they see it as arrangement taking pre-existing materials and putting them together in new ways that create something ultimately new and when you think of um Music, uh, I'm not a musical theorist or scholar, but there are only a certain number of notes, and 
you can put them together in different simultaneities, chords, or you can put them together in different orders, uh, melodies. And so it seems inevitable, especially when you further limit things by a particular time frame or a culture, it's inevitable that there's going to be some repetition. Um, sometimes it would seem wholly innocent. People come up with very similar things without any knowledge of the other, right? Other times through a kind of either subconscious plagiarism or a delayed type plagiarism or even a conscious reappropriation. So the essay is full of uh, different musical examples, sometimes because cases went to court, like uh, George Harrison was sued because his song, My Sweet Lord, has the same vocal melody as He's So Fine by the Chiffons. And he lost that case and he paid uh, millions in damages. And I think it's a kind of a fiasco. And there are other cases that were settled out of court. Um, John Fogarty from Creedence Clearwater Revival was sued for plagiarizing himself, for sounding too much like himself. And that was because the Creedence songs, he no longer owned the rights to them. In any case, even in writing where we have a maybe a bigger palette because there are so many words, um, we almost automatically fall into influence from the writers that we read. And sometimes, as it would seem in the case of Milton, it's conscious. You know, he was borrowing very uh, directly and intentionally. And in other cases, it's less, it's, it's subconscious. But <clears throat> to claim that one is not influenced, I think, is just naivete. Hmm. So, so as a, a writer who's influenced by the past, now I'm going to put you on the witness stand, Patrick Madden. Um, how, where do you fall on that spectrum of conscious versus unconscious borrowing? I mean, here you've got an essay about originality. How original are you trying to be in this essay of, with your own work? Are you trying to be original on the impossibility of being original? Uh, no. I, I think I'm very, well, there are, cited block quotes throughout not just that essay but throughout the book so i'm obviously borrowing in that sense i also will sometimes you know quote in line with or without citation <clears throat> sometimes if a quote seems obvious enough or common enough i'll just leave it without a citation and there are times when i intentionally borrow phrases from other writers with no attribution at all. Because there are moments in this where it almost seems like the style switches the slightest bit, like you're kind of channeling other writers. It's, it's, it's a fascinating read. Good. I'm hoping uh, for that very effect. And uh, I think that, yeah, if certain other writers were to read this essay, they would find themselves in it. It's a nice. It's a nice way to end it, right? The 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 essayist puts him or herself out there, and in the end, you find something kindred in them, um, and that's a nice way to move forward. Well, so so now that you've kind of reckoned with the question of originality, how do you move forward as an essay? What are you working on now? What comes after Sublime Physic? I have two projects that I'm working on a little bit here and there, but. I want to take a break from writing long 
somewhat convoluted essays and focus instead on briefer essays, which isn't to say that they're only uh, narrative or only imagistic, but they get to where they're going faster. And uh, one inspiration comes from William Hazlitt, who in his essay, The Indian Jugglers, laments that he, he doesn't know how to juggle. And he's comparing essay writing to juggling. And initially, he's uh, distraught that he can only write essays. And he says, what abortions are these essays? So I started to write intentionally aborted essays um, that I refuse to finish in the way that I typically would. And they tend to move kind of trippingly forward, kind of quickly and uh, very associatively. The second part of that project I'm hoping that they'll be humorous, more humorous than typical, though I, I think there are some humorous moments, even in the long essays. Um, but I also want to do like a hip-hop artist and invite featured uh, guest writers to do a little bridge within some of the essays. So you see on an album where you have, oh, I don't know, um, Shakira featuring Pitbull, right? Um to, to just bring up one of my favorites, of course. Sure. <laughs> your, whole, your whole stand as a classicist has now just been blown, which is wonderful. <laughs> well, you know, I wish, I wish I knew a little more about Pitbull just to, to have more you know, joke material or something. I don't know. Anyways, uh, so I want to write the frame of an essay and then invite Eric LeMay to add a paragraph somewhere in the middle on the same subject um, and maybe change the font or something so it's obvious which voice is speaking. But you'd have a little uh, rap interlude inside the essay. And I'm doing that partly out of laziness and partly out of the same idea from an independent redundancy that I want to kind of invite other voices into the essays to... uh, create a kind of friction that I think will sum to something uh, more interesting. So, and I want to call that book uh, Disparates, which we don't usually use in noun form, but it exists as a noun. Disparates in English would mean just different stuff, uh, which might be sort of like Francis Bacon's essay of vicissitude of things, which is basically about a lot of stuff. (laughs) Well, I, I think one of the things that happens when when writers and artists get rid of the the romantic with a capital R idea of the the single solitary genius creating ex nihilo that you had mentioned earlier is that you become a lot less possessive about your own work. It's to invite in other voices, to invite in respondents. It suddenly becomes very exciting and collaborative because you don't have to worry about fending off and you know contaminating your vision of genius with the influence of someone else. Uh, and it, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities that are quite playful. Right. That's what I'm hoping for. And I've long, long been very conscious of the ways that I'm influenced. And so this is kind of a next step of espousing that, like just owning it, you know? And I was going to say the other meaning for disparates that I take is from the Spanish, where it would be disparates. And that has a much better connotation because if somebody in Spanish says, you're just saying disparates, they mean you're just spouting nonsense. And 
So I like the idea of undermining the seriousness of essays by calling them nonsense. Well, I hope that when you finish this book, you will come back and talk to us, perhaps with one of your Spanish collaborators. <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Patrick Madden, thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Eric. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Patrick Madden, author of Sublime Physic on the New Books Network.